0: Was begin our study this morning of John chapter 10. I wanted to approach this text a little bit differently in setting up the scene. It's important that as we begin that we have a proper understanding of sheep and shepherding in ancient Palestine before we begin to inform the text with our own and ideas. For many of us, our understanding of sheep and shepherding doesn't go much further than perhaps images we remember and recall from Sunday school. With a blue-eyed, blue, beautiful, blonde-haired Jesus. With a nice, beautiful lamb, softly thrown over his shoulder. Or perhaps those little precious moments perhaps you have on your shelf at home with a, a nice, glimmering, smiling Jesus. With this white beautiful lamb crested upon him, folded gently over his shoulder. Friends, if you've ever been around sheep and shepherds, we know this is not how they look. The conditions of shepherding in ancient Palestine are are very different than even modern practices, though there is some correlation between the two. In Palestine, sheep would have often been unpinned, but also penned. Sheep would have often been intermixed. If it was a small family herd, maybe one or two sheep, uh, they would not have been able to afford to have a full-time shepherd watching over their sheep. Therefore, oftentimes, these sheep would have been intermingled with other flocks. and So the need to be able to distinguish sheep from sheep, owner from owner, More than that, we know that sheep are utterly dependent upon their shepherds. Sheep need a shepherd. Without a shepherd, they have no protection. They have no ability to find water or shelter. Shepherds also tend injuries to sheep. Just as any animal, they can't fix a broken leg or mend any scars. In fact, sheep would not survive long without a shepherd. Sheep are entirely dependent creatures. They are also exceptionally unintelligent. So often when we use this language and imagery in the Bible, we are confronted with this idea that we are sheep. And and we love the idea. We think, oh, yes, we are Jesus' sheep and and he is our shepherd. Friends, this imagery is not meant to be a compliment often. Sheep are prone to wonder, prone and unable often to find their way even back to a sheepfold that is right before their eyes. More than that, sheep are very filthy animals. They are unclean. They they are dirty animals. This This is why in ancient Palestine, shepherds were regarded as unclean and not welcome in the temple courts. More than that, the work of a shepherd is a painstaking job that requires great skill. It was the task of a shepherd to lead sheep from nighttime protection to paths of grazing and watering. After morning grazing and watering, sheep typically lie down for several hours, returning at night to the sheepfold, where the shepherd would attend the fevered and the damaged sheep. Shepherds were providers, they were guiders, they were protectors, and constant companions to sheep. When a first century Jew heard images like, You are sheep, and I am a shepherd, who would conjure in their minds what they knew so well as they walked through town. Eastern shepherds can divide flocks often even today. That have mingled over time just by calling their sheep by name. But more than just the everyday historical context in which this passage finds. There is rich Old Testament passages like the one that you heard from Ezekiel 34. And and culminating in Ezekiel 37 where God says that his people are sheep in his flock. And that he is their shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, God condemned the religious leaders, judged them for their lack of care. They were under shepherds. They were to care for God's people, but they had only cared for themselves. They were using the sheep to make themselves fat and the sheep lean. And God, through the prophet Ezekiel, prophesied a time when God would, would gather his sheep that had been scattered all over the world and, and where he would bring them under one unified sheep. And in Ezekiel 37, we all know Ezekiel 36, right? The Valley of Dry Bones, where God told the prophet to speak to a valley and amass and a, a, a massive army. Well, do you know what follows? Well, Ezekiel 37, that per, where the prophet prophesied the Holy Spirit would come and, and bring new birth. And we've already dealt with that in, in John chapter 3. But, but chapter 37 goes on and, and talks about how there would be a, unif- a reunification of Israel, where the northern tribes and the southern tribes would be reunited under one new leader. God prophesied through Ezekiel that he, that God, through this future shepherd, through this future king, this Davidic king, would lead God's people unified into good pasture, into good land where they would be supplied and have. It was a future era of God's redemptive plan. And it's with this in mind. That John lays before us Jesus' teaching in John chapter 10. So so with that in your mind, just thinking through some of the themes you heard in, in Ezekiel 34, I invite you to turn now to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is a very long chapter, 42 verses. Lord willing, we'll get through most of them today. One way that you could perhaps just rich in your mind today, maybe this afternoon, would be to read Ezekiel 34 through 37 and then come back here to John again and just see how much John used Ezekiel and pointing it to fulfillment in Christ. John chapter 10 beginning in verse 1 Jesus is speaking here truly truly I say to you he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own sheep, he goes before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We'll stop our reading there. Continue in a moment. The point of John chapter 10 is this. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his flock. By providing, protecting, and sacrificing himself for God's people. Who in turn obey and follow him. The purpose of our time this morning is is really meant to encourage us. If you remember John's main idea throughout the entire book. is not only evangelistic that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But also to encourage. Encourage the faithful to strengthen our faith, to remind us of these theological truths that undergird, that that bring foundational strength to our everyday life. To remind us that that Jesus is the good shepherd. And all by simple truth, but profound in meaning, having implication for everyday life. Well, our passage this morning divides easily into two scenes. Verses 1 through 21, which I just read, is the first scene. Uh, the second scene is set in verse 22 through the end of verse 39. And then John provides a, a really a concluding statement, a transitional statement, as Jesus' public ministry comes to a close, as Jesus withdraws from the area Of Jerusalem to the Judean countryside, back where John the Baptist began, where Jesus began his ministry in Capernaum. It marks the end of Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel. And begins the transition to that long passion narrative beginning in chapter 12. Our passage begins in verse 1, really a continuation of John chapter 9. Remember in John chapter 9, Jesus had healed a man who was born blind and he had done it on the Sabbath day. It was a fulfillment of the prophecy that God had prophesied that that when the Messiah comes, that he would heal the blind. And it was a it was a vivid picture of not only of the power of the spirit to bring life, spiritual uh, sight to the blind, but also an indictment on those who did not believe. That all of us, before Christ saves us, is spiritually blind and unable to see. And so we need the Spirit to bring life, sight, where there is darkness. This morning we see here in John chapter 10 verses 1 through 21. The the main theme of that section is that Jesus is the good shepherd. We saw twice there that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd who cares for his sheep. We see a number of ways here in this passage. Uh, how jesus cares for his sheep don't we well in verses one through six jesus tells a parable jesus tells a parable that they would have easily understood easily pictured in their mind but but they seem to be confused and we have this comment by john there look with me in verse six this figure of speech uh A word that has the idea of parable. This parable Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So often in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus used parables not to reveal spiritual truth, but to hide the truth. Jesus would often use parables as a means of condemnation upon those who were hearing as a way to blind the seeing, but but to give sight to the blind. Friends, this is exactly how he ended, right? John chapter 9. Look at John chapter 9 again. Jesus said to the religious leaders, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, the spiritually blind, the religious leaders, thought they could see. They thought they could understand spiritual truth. And so Jesus uh, gives this parables a means of sort of condemnation against them. As you'll see, the, the rest of the narrative, all the way through John chapter 10, is mainly a condemnation of the religious leaders. In other words, he is saying Ezekiel 34 that judgment upon the religious leaders is applied to you. It's really about you. And you are not a part of my sheep. Well, Jesus enumerates a number of ways here, doesn't he? That he cares for his sheep. In the parable that he tells, the good shepherd, we are, we are told, gathers his sheep. Notice what he says. He, he says that, listen, I am the, good, I'm the shepherd, right? Right? Everyone else is a thief and a robber. When he's brought out his own, verse 4, he goes before them and his sheep follow them, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee for him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus gathers his sheep, just as Ezekiel had prophesied. Remember, Remember in Ezekiel 34, God promised that he would gather his sheep from all over, The face of the earth. Now in the immediate context of Ezekiel 34. That's in reference to the scattering of the nation of Israel as a result of their sin. Both in the Assyrian conquest and in the Babylonian conquest of the nation of Judah and respectively Israel. The nations of Israel and Judah were scattered across the globe because uh, they were taken captives and their their captors took them away from their land. And God promised that when the good shepherd came, when this future shepherd came, that God would gather and reunify his people again. And Jesus here is foretelling in this this parable that he is the one who will gather God's people, gather his sheep. One of the roles that Jesus plays is to gather his sheep, and he's been gathering his sheep for 2,000 years. From all over the world, God has been through Jesus gathering his sheep. But not only does Jesus, the good shepherd, gather his sheep, we see in verses 7 through 10 that the good shepherd provides for his sheep. Notice what he says as he explains the parable. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, they didn't listen to him. All who came before me, he said. Or thieves and robbers. They, their intention was to take advantage of the sheep. But here we see that the good shepherd doesn't take advantage of the sheep, but rather provides for the sheep. Notice what he says there in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now this language of going in and out might for our ears just kind of sing, okay, He's just using imagery here. But if you take that phrase, go in and out and find pasture, and you go back to Ezekiel chapter 34, God promised to the prophet Ezekiel in verse 14 of chapter 34 that they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. What Ezekiel prophesied was a, a picture of the new heaven and new earth. The, this new kingdom that would come where God's people. His covenant people would be gathered together. And, and he's speaking here of a new covenant community. Made up of, as we'll see in a moment, not merely of Jews, but of Gentiles. But the point here in verses 7 through 10. Is that Jesus comes to give life where the enemy comes to give death. Look there at verse 10, that passage probably perhaps you knew out of of all of these verses here in chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Right. So if you tune on those prosperity preachers today, John 10 will probably come up. Guarantee you. What they're applying here, or or the application of this passage, is not an immediate reality, but rather a future expectation of the new heaven and new earth. The point here is to contrast these religious leaders with who Jesus is. You see, they came only to steal, kill, and destroy. They came to give death, but what he came was to give life. See, what Jesus provides for his sheep is the life that we need. Reminiscent of Psalm 23, isn't it? That God is the the shepherd who lays me down in good pastures. Reminder that God provides for his sheep. But Jesus is not only a good shepherd that provides for his sheep. Notice that he sacrifices for his sheep. Look with me in verses 11 through 13. Jesus said again, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, as you think about this on the surface, you think, "Well, yeah, of course, Jesus, we understand you lay down your life. Jesus sacrificed. But, but in a logical context of sheep and shepherding, if the shepherd lays down his life, that is sacrifices himself. What good is that for the sheep? If the shepherd dies, what happens to the sheep? Well, they're vulnerable. They, they could be attacked if the shepherd's gone, if he's dead. You see, Jesus here is, is filling one's mind with a richer picture of what he does on the cross. That, that what he does on the cross isn't, doesn't put the sheep in a vulnerable place, but a place of blessing. As he'll say in a moment, he, he lays down his life and he has the authority to pick his life back up again. That when Jesus sacrifices himself, he is in utter and total control. The good shepherd, he says, sacrifices for his sheep. Now, Jesus here contrasts himself with what he calls in verse 12, the hired hand. Again, this is a sort of a, uh, not to keep flipping back and forth, but but listen to Ezekiel 34:3. In God's condemnation of these so-called shepherds in Israel, you eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Jesus almost uses the sort of similar language. Look, you're a hired hand, you religious leaders. All you care about is yourself. You're just like your forefathers who cared only for themselves and, and not for God's sheep. But Jesus was a shepherd He was the one who who would sacrifice himself, who would lay himself down, who would die the death these sheep deserve. Again, he reiterates, if you look there in verses 17 through 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We see a number of things here. Number one, we see that Jesus has complete control over his fate. Some in this world will tell you that that the death of Jesus was was a tragic accident. That Jesus was a moral and upright man, a good teacher, and it was a tragic accident. You see, Jesus, though, had a very different perspective on what happened on the cross. That while Jesus will attribute what the Jews and what Pilate ultimately did, fundamentally, Jesus was the one who went to the cross. No one twisted Jesus' arm. No one made Jesus do it. No one said, Jesus, you have to do this. No, Jesus willingly went to the cross. He was a willing sacrifice. He willingly laid down His life not for his own sin, but for the sins of all those who would ever repent and trust in him. Jesus went to the cross to die, he says, for his sheep. I believe John chapter 10, more than any other chapter in all the Bible, teaches a particular redemption. Jesus Christ went to the cross for his sheep, not for the goats. Jesus Christ went to the cross as a vicarious death to die the death of all those who would turn and trust in him. This is what Jesus says, doesn't he? I lay down my life for who? My sheep. He doesn't say he lays down his life for all people, but for his sheep. Jesus dies for those whom are his. Thirdly, we see here, In Jesus' sacrifice for his sheep. That he does it because of his love. A divine love. Look there at verse 17 again. For this reason my father loves me. For this reason. I say often that that our salvation is wrapped up in a triune love for father, son and spirit. Our salvation is an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. A Picture a glimpse into the Trinity here as the Son loves the Father and is obeying the Father. And the Father loves the Son. Friend, your salvation is connected to a triune God that loves itself. As Jesus will say later in John 15, 13. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Whatever you ask in the Father's name, this I do. Who would lay down their life but for a friend? Jesus lays down his life for his own. The good shepherd sacrifices for his sheep. But fourthly here in this section, and we see that the good shepherd knows his sheep look with me again at verse 14 i am the good shepherd every time jesus says that he's about to say something new about the good shepherd all right he says i am the good shepherd i know my own and my own know me and to clarify what he means by i know my own and my known know me Look at verse 15. He says, just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. The good shepherd knows whose are his and whose aren't his. You remember all the way back at the beginning of John's gospel. John had this statement that he made. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself. To them because he knew all people. Jesus knew who his sheep were. He knew who his were. He knows his sheep. And his sheep, he says, know him. There's a relationship, an eternal relationship, a preordained relationship, as we'll see a predestined relationship between Jesus and his sheep. He says, I know them. And they know me. And the base of of this is this knowledge that the Father and the Son have for one another. An intimate knowledge. An eternal knowledge. One would say that no one knows the Father and Son better than themselves. You know, we often pride ourselves that we know ourselves. I know me. I know me. Jesus often would say, you don't know yourself. I know you. I know every hair on your head. I know everything about you. I know you better than you know yourself. Friend, the world may never know your name. One of the things I love often to do is is to either read or listen to biography or autobiographies of really great men and women. This is past week listening to one of a really a great leader here in, in our world. Someone who's gone all over the world and people know him by name. And I was reflecting on that truth of how so many people go through this world unknown. No one knows them outside perhaps their family or their little community. No one will ever know them. They'll never run a Fortune 500 company. Their name will never be on the the nightly news. They'll, They'll never be known in this world. But friend, think about this for a moment. That the eternal Son of God, the Creator of the Cosmos, Knows you. It's a simple truth. It is a simple truth. But don't let that wash over you this morning. God knows you. If you are his sheep this morning. He knows you. He knows you. He loves you so much. He he knows you beyond your name. He knows you intimately. This is the good shepherd who lays down his life. But Jesus makes another statement here. He says that I have some sheep that are not a part of this fold and I must bring them also in. This is a clear reference to to Ezekiel 37. Where God prophesies where he will reunify Israel. But but this time Jesus expands it beyond the ethnic borders of Judaism and says that. That he is going to include Gentiles into his fold. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes that that we were once alienated, separated from the promises of God. But but through Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. That this morning, you and I as Gentiles have been included into the sheepfold. That we also are a part of that flock. Jesus is the good shepherd, the noble shepherd who cares for his sheep by providing, protecting, and sacrificing and intimately knowing his sheep. Friend, do you know Jesus this morning? See, a good question to ask yourself this morning is is in reflection of Jesus' statement. I know my own and my own know me. Do you know Jesus? Jesus? Do you know the Jesus of John chapter 10? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? I, I don't mean that, that Jesus, or that blue, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus. That, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. I don't mean that Jesus of your imagination or of pop culture or of Hollywood. I mean the Jesus of the Bible, the, the bloody Jesus, the Jesus who lays down his life, who gives himself for your sin and my sin. Do you know that Jesus? I pray you do. And I pray you would. Jesus takes on those and clarifies. In the synoptic gospels, Jesus would often say in the end times, there will be a great separation. The sheeps and the goats will be separated. And we'll know who really is who. This morning, though, Jesus doesn't make... Explicit reference to the term goats. Following that theme of Ezekiel 34, God calls the religious leaders goats. He says, listen, uh, you're not my sheep. You're a goat. And and Jesus takes them on and he says, listen, goats. And I want you to hear this. This is one of Jesus' hard sayings. Goats, you're unable to believe. In John chapter 10, in verses 22 through 42, Jesus makes a compelling case of the inability to believe in him. That sin so separates us from God, so blinds us spiritually, that we are unable, apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, to believe. Look here at the end of chapter, or the end of this section in verse 19. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he he's, has a demon. This guy's insane. Why listen to him? Verse 21, others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? John includes this to remind us that we've not left John 10, or John 9 rather. He includes this to remind us that we've not left this healing of the man born blind. That we're thinking still about spiritual blindness. And Jesus is about to shine a light upon the spiritual blindness of these so-called religious leaders. There's really two main ideas that are presented in this section. That Jesus is the Messiah. And that Jesus is the Son of God. Two themes that we've talked about. No really much reason to dig deep into again. But, but the main idea here is that they are enabled, unable, not able to believe in Jesus. Why? Because they are not his sheep. Well, the context of this is set behind the festival of dedication. We are told, told in verse 22. And really this whole dedication is not in the Old Testament law. It's not something that was commanded by scripture, but it is a time of celebration of the rededication of the temple in 167 BC. Um, Antichrist Epiphanes had come in and had desecrated the temple and the Israelites had kind of set the temple back up. The, The altars was, was rebuilt And they celebrate every year the Festival of Dedication, or what you and I know as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And it was during this particular festival that Jesus is teaching. And There seems to be not much more than just the historical context that relates to the meaning of what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus makes two emphatic points, first in verses 22 through 30, that they are unable to believe that he is the Messiah because they are not his sheep. And then again, in verses 31 through 39, that they're unable to believe in him as the son of God. Notice a couple of things. The Jews asked Jesus there in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said them, I told you, and you did not believe. Now, I want to be clear before we get down this road of ability and inability. Many people misunderstand the doctrine of grace to mean that one who is unable is therefore not morally responsible. Jesus makes emphatically clear that every human being is morally responsible before God. Notice what he says. I told you and you, you all, that he's talking to the audience, did not believe. In other words, he puts moral responsibility on his audience that God had provided sufficient evidence through his son to believe in him and that they chose not to believe. So do not misunderstand what I'm about to say about ability precedes belief. That one needs the ability in order to believe. As to somehow undermine moral responsibility. No, we are moral responsible beings. We are responsible before God for our actions. So therefore we we reject the idea that we are just mere automatons and that we're just going, we're like puppets, and God's just sort of, you know, controlling us. Not what the Bible teaches when we think about the doctrines of grace and particular predestination. We believe that we have moral responsibility to believe in Jesus, but that our sin is so great that it has spiritually blinded us and disabled us from believing. This is the clear doctrines. Of scripture, And so Jesus says to me, says to them, listen, the works that I do in my father's name, bear witness about me. Notice, notice what he says again in verse 26. But you all do not believe. And here it is, because you are not among my sheep. You remember Jesus said, I have a lot of hard things to say to you. And this is one of them, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean you're going to fully comprehend and understand it. There is a moral responsibility to believe, but there is a moral inability because they were not his sheep. Notice here, verse 27, why Jesus knows they are not his sheep. Because my sheep, he says, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see, it's those three ideas that make up a sheep of Jesus. They hear, they know, and they follow. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Before we get to the oneness here of the father and the son. We see a number of aspects of this doctrine of predestination. A doctrine that some have for whatever reason been afraid of. But it's a biblical doctrine. It's on the clear pages of scripture. It's clearly emphatically taught here by Jesus. All that the father gives to me will come to me. He says in John chapter 6 in verse 37. And then again here. In John chapter 10, in verse 28, or rather 29, my Father who has given them my sheep to me. There is a divine destination that Jesus' sheep are on, that the Father has called a people unto himself through his Son, Jesus Christ, and that they are unable, these goats, to believe because they're not sheep. Only sheep hear his voice and believe in him. Brothers and sisters, this is not meant to confuse or discourage, but meant to comfort, meant to encourage us, meant to assure us. How are we to know what sheep are if we don't have characteristic of sheep? If we're just like, oh, all those who say they're sheep are sheep. Jesus never talked like that. Never, never did Jesus say, just call yourself a Christian and you're a Christian. No, Jesus gave some very clear identifiers of what, a, of what a sheep or a Christian was. Did you see him? My sheep hear my voice. They respond with saving faith. They respond by repenting and believing in Jesus. And I know my sheep. Remember Jesus <clears throat> taught in the synoptic gospels that there will be a group of folks that are going to turn up on judgment day. you to be like, Jesus, we know you. We did all these awesome things in your name. We, we ran this world. We said, listen, we're followers of Jesus. And they turned up into heaven. What did Jesus say? I don't know you people. I never met you before in my life. Get out of here. Depart from me. No, see Jesus knows his sheep. And how do we know them? Here's Here it is, verse 27. They follow me. Friends, a, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. We all know that, right? We use those uh, words, follow Jesus. You remember what Jesus said, what it looked like to follow him? He said to his disciples, do you want to follow me? Simon Peter was like, yeah, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, then take up your cross. Deny yourself." And follow me. You see to follow Jesus means to die to yourself. To die to the way you are living your life. It means you take the crown off your head. And you give it to another. To Jesus. And he becomes king. He decides. The trajectory of your life. He decides what you do. And how you live. You see, it's a a matter of authority. You're a follower, not a leader. Jesus is the leader. See, this is what distinguishes the sheep and the goats, isn't it? Is the ability to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the king of kings, the Davidic king who would come and rule over God's people as he promised through the prophet. Jesus makes clear. That his sheep will never be lost. And that's meant to comfort us, brothers and sisters. You see, see, the doctrine of predestination is often a doctrine that's, uh, that's ran from and discouraged. But the perseverance of the saints, this doctrine of grace, the perseverance of the saints, is a doctrine that Christians historically have cherished, not been afraid of. It's a doctrine that teaches us that, not that... Not that we'd want to lose our salvation, but that Jesus Christ has secured our salvation, that we've had nothing to do with it. This is why I always push back against that once saved, always saved mantra. Because it it, it, it separates it. While, yes, I get the idea, I get the truth behind it, I get get what it's after. And there's a semblance of truth in the statement. But it takes away the responsibility of sheep to follow. And it enables you to think that if if I'm not following Jesus, then I must be okay because I once saved, always saved. It puts it in a moment of time rather than a lifetime of following. This is why Reformed Baptists have used the word perseverance of the saints. That true saints, true followers of Jesus, persevere to the end. How do we know if one's truly a Christian or not? They get to the end. That's it. We don't know otherwise. But the assurance, the hope we have that we will get to the end is not in ourselves. But look at verse 29. Or rather the end of verse 28. That they will not perish and that no one will snatch them out of my hand. What kind of shepherd is Jesus? He's a a shepherd that guards the sheep. He keeps them from being snatched away. As Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, neither height nor depth, nor all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ. In the doctrine of election, the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is meant to propel us to get up when we stumble and fall. To keep moving towards Jesus. As the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, you're gonna stumble. You're gonna fall. You're gonna fall into the pits. You're gonna maybe crash and burn. But what distinguishes a sheep from a goat? Is that the good shepherd? He gets them up and they follow him. Secondly, in this section, we see. That the goats were unable to believe that Jesus was the son of God. Verses 31 through 39, Jesus seeks to convince them from the Old Testament scripture, in particularly quoting Psalm 82 and verse six. To try to get them to understand that if God in the Old Testament called the people of Israel little g-gods, why were they so frustrated when Jesus said that he was the Son of God? Now, now of course, Jesus doesn't mean by quoting Psalm 82 that he is a a little g-god, that he is just a god. Of course, he's taught in John and, and elsewhere that he's much more than that. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the El Shaddai, the God Almighty. And so Jesus here is trying to argue from a lesser to greater argument, but they can't see it. They they are so blinded by it. So frustrated. And Jesus says this in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but but he escaped from their hands. Jesus says, listen, if you're going to believe anything, at least believe the works. Look at the evidence. You know, you'll often hear, and I've often heard, People will say, man, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe. If I could have just been there to witness this miracle. If I could have just seen and heard him, then I would believe. Or or if God will do this, then I'll believe. If God will answer this prayer in this moment of need, right now, in this moment of despair if He will meet me right now in my need, then I will believe in Him. No, you wouldn't. No more than they did. They saw it all. From beginning to end. They, they had eyes that saw. They witnessed it. They inspected it. They rolled it over in their minds. They interrogated that that poor blind man over and over and over again. They knew that he was blind, but he could see, but they couldn't see. They were blind. Spiritually blind. You see, the ability to believe precedes belief. This was the point that Jesus was trying to make with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, that the wind blows where it wishes and no one knows where it comes from. So it is with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. The Holy Spirit blows, regenerating life after life, and no one knows how. Blind eyes see, and seeing eyes are blinded. Friend, remember that in your evangelism, remember that when you share the gospel. That salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. And leave it to God to save sinners. One cannot believe in Jesus. Until the Holy Spirit gives them eyes to see Jesus. What we call regeneration or new birth. Jesus makes emphatically clear. That only those who are his can obey. Follow. And listen to his voice. Friend, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who cares for his flock by providing for them. He provides for you, brothers and sisters. Remember that. When the enemy causes you to doubt, remember Jesus is not just a shepherd, but he's the noble shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Jesus is the protector. Do you believe that promise that no one will be able to snatch? When I read that, you know what I always do? I always read that as, Chris, you can't snatch yourself out of his hands. In other words, even you, dummy, can't mess this up. Brothers that, and sisters, that is the most encouraging word I say to myself every week. I got by another week. Not because of me, but because the promise that Jesus will not let anyone, anyone, Friend, do you believe that Jesus laid down His life for your sin? You don't need to sacrifice for Jesus. Jesus is sacrificed for you. You don't need to do anything to earn God's love, to impress God. Lay down the selfish ambitions of impressing others, of trying to impress God. Jesus laid down His life for you. Remember that Jesus knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. Trust Him. Believe in Him, sheep. Trust that the the Good Shepherd knows you. and He will get you home. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we might believe upon Jesus, our Good Shepherd. That we might know and trust that He has laid down His life for us. That we are His sheep. That he knows us. Lord, I pray this morning that we might follow him. It's hard to follow Jesus. But you have given us the ability to do it. And may we do it for your glory. and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.